For the first time, the amount of digital information generated about us is exceeding the information created by us. It's dubbed the digital shadow. This trail of digital information that we leave as we routinely use everyday technology. There's also the information we willingly reveal, most often when accessing services via the internet and on social networking sites such as Bebo and Facebook. Is this information putting your privacy at risk, or is it all just part of living in a wired world? Sue Ingram investigates. I like to think of myself as a fairly standard user of technology. I have a cell phone, I have an MP3 player, I surf the internet. At the moment I'm sitting in front of my computer downloading a personal digital footprint calculator which I guess will track some of the things I do and show me just how much digital information I actually create. Okay, so first I have to put in my name. Then press start, and we'll see what happens. After asking me to estimate things like rate of email use, credit card use, how many photos taken on a digital camera, cell phone calls and web surfing, the digital footprint calculator comes up with a figure. So there we are. My daily personal digital footprint has been estimated, and it comes to 1,235 megabytes. The digital footprint is the digital information that you create about yourself. The digital photographs that you take, the things that you surf on the internet, those sorts of things, they're part of your digital footprint. The digital shadow is the information which is collected about you by others, and it might be digital photographs, for example, that your friends take of you. It's the financial records that exist in a bank. It's when the hospital digitises your medical records. That is digital information that is created about you, but not by you. A digital shadow is usually understood to mean the information that others create about you, as opposed to the information you create about yourself. But I prefer to see it in the round. I think the digital shadow is generally understood to mean all that digital information that is out there about you, whether you created it or someone else created it. Every time you make a cell phone call, you have to communicate with a cell site, which has a location, so there's a date and a time and a location associated with that. You travel to work in a car, there's cameras, traffic cameras, security cameras in shops and buildings. You'd be caught on camera several times going into town or going to a shop. Banks, every time we make a financial transaction, every time we use the FPOS card, every time uh, you use your credit card somewhere, you leave a, a place, date and time of, of where that, that transaction occurred. Get the picture? Well, someone probably has, literally. Laurie Gabbitis is the manager of city safety at Wellington City Council. There's the camera up on the pole. So it's inside that little dome, and as you can see, it moves. And it does that all day, so it goes through a 360-degree cycle um, every so many seconds, and that's being recorded, uh, but nobody will be sitting monitoring it at the moment. In Britain, there are more than 4 million closed-circuit TV cameras, or CCTV, on buildings, shops, roads and train stations, making Britons the most closely monitored population in the world. New Zealand doesn't come close to that, but in towns and cities around the country, cameras are proliferating. 
Wellington City Council operates just three, although there are plans to increase that. We currently have three, but of, as a council we have a number of other cameras that focus on such things as traffic management and of course our asset management. Obviously, you know, there are places like banks and ATMs and different shops that have their own CCTV. The three city council cameras are only actively monitored at peak or critical times. Come on through. So I thought I'd may as well put it in standard operations mode. Kester Fordham is in charge of the staff who monitor the cameras. Let's have a look at Dixon Street East. Okay, from here you can manually control the camera. Let's look at what particular area you want. So say there was an issue happening in the middle of Tiara Park. Cite that. Zoom in. Get a better look at who or whatever I want to. But this just allows us to hopefully identify any issues that are building up in an area. Uh, we also have our staff on the street, so as a sort of an effort between the staff monitoring the camera and the staff on the street, if we see a potential problem, not something that we think necessarily needs police, we'll call our staff on the street and get them to go and have a closer look. Or um, they might call us and get us to get a face shot of someone they believe is a potential problem person, just so we've got footage of who was there at the time if something happens later on. They may, in the end, be more useful to identify and detect crime rather than actually to protect the citizen on the spot. Marie Schroff is the Privacy Commissioner. The general privacy law covers the use of CCTV cameras as well, and so people who are operating CCTV cameras should be aware that they certainly need to have good signage telling people that they're being monitored on CCTV. They need to have good procedures for access, any access to that information. It should be collected for a particular purpose and only used for that purpose. It should be safely stored and it should probably be disposed of after it's, it's, it's no longer needed. Wellington City Council keeps the camera images for up to 30 days. We record it for a period of time and then it's overridden. So we don't have any long-term storage. CCTV footage can offer the police useful information if they're lucky someone they're interested in may have been tracked across town by a combination of traffic and security cameras. Hi, where, where are you? Using a cell phone also reveals where you are and what time your call's been placed. I thought you were going to meet me here. Cell phone calls aren't recorded and the police say they don't monitor conversations, but that doesn't mean mobiles aren't useful to them. Martin Kleinjess is the manager for the National Electronic Crime Lab. It's called call data, which is not the call content, but it's the call data. They keep that for uh, their own billing purposes and police, with a warrant, can go to a service provider and, and make requests uh, as to you know, what call to a place at what time and between what numbers. Martin Kleinjes says in the Netherlands, cell phone providers monitor every mobile as a matter of fact all the time. And a huge pool of data is then sold off as a commodity to other providers who provide uh, information, for example, about uh, traffic and traffic jams and, and, and during peak hours. So the, you can go to a website and you see the roads, and the roads are nicely white if everything moves moves fast. But if a cluster of cell phones that are being, that are being monitored all of, a, all of a sudden start to move slowly in a certain direction, then obviously on that road there is a traffic jam. So you can see on the website anything going from, from white to pink to red when it stops. And it's, it's all dynamic, so it's com completely updated all the time. Text messages can also be revealing. 
There's been a slew of court cases recently in which text messages have been produced as part of the prosecution evidence. Plans by Telecom to follow Vodafone's lead and stop storing text messages have alarmed the police. We have solved a number of serious crimes in the past because of the content of text messages. And、um, if providers no longer going to keep that, then there is a, a loss of evidence, a source of evidence to the police, and it makes it difficult, more difficult for us to solve these crimes. A government spokesperson says the police are in negotiation with the telephone companies to try to sort out a solution. But if that doesn't work, other alternatives will have to be considered. Robin Whitaker from EMC says the increase in telephone digital traffic is just one factor contributing to an explosion in the volume of digital information. Overall, within the whole sort of digital universe, the amount of information that is being collected by yourself and by other people is growing 60% per annum. Using an ATM, buying things with an FPOS card, putting something on credit. Also generates a wealth of information. In total, New Zealanders use FPOS and credit cards more than two million times a day. That's just over 800 million transactions a year. Simon Tong is the chief executive officer of Paymark, the company that handles 75% of all FPOS and credit card in-store transactions. The trail of digital information offered up, often unwittingly by shoppers. Can provide useful information to retailers. If you were running a chemist in Howick, we could tell you how, for instance, chemists have, are going generally across the country, and perhaps how they're going in Wellington, or how they're going in Auckland, and, and that sort of data. So we can break it down by segment code. The information is also used by the Reserve Bank and is a resource for Statistics New Zealand. Simon Tong says it can also be used in conjunction with other details. We have some examples where. Um, large retailers also work with their banks, their respective banks, to overlay our data with、um, demographic information. Because, of course, banks do have cardholder information naturally, and they can provide generic information uh, around, um, you know, women between the ages of 30 and 40 who are shopping in a particular area. Paymark is about to launch a new service selling information to its merchants to allow them to judge how their business is doing compared to others. But specific information that would allow Paymark to see which shop an individual visited and when is not held by the company. Essentially, what happens is at the end of the day, we send various files off to the settlement system for for banking in New Zealand, so that、um, you know the money that you've spent during the day, for instance, with your FPOS card or credit card, is attributed to the right people in the right accounts. And once that process is finished, we hold the data for just a few days, and then effectively we we cleanse it. And what I mean by that is that we remove the cardholder information, and we're obliged to do that. So we don't hold individual information. Add in the use of a loyalty card at the time you buy something, and another set of digital footprints become available to retailers and advertisers. A great deal of other information about people, their lifestyle and habits, is also gathered by utility companies and government agencies. Marie Schroff, the Privacy Commissioner. Starting at birth, you have the Hillprick test, the Guthrie card, which was started in the late 60s in New Zealand and has been collected continuously about every child born in New Zealand since then. And then going on through, say, to school.、Uh, these days, and this is relatively recent, schools have electronic records about all kinds of things to do with the children, not just their academic 
uh, record, but also things to do with perhaps custody or access, that kind of thing. And then at university, of course. And then as you progress out into life, uh, your driver's licence, your car information that, that's related to you, uh, you may, for example, go on to a benefit or a student loan scheme, and then as you get older, you may well become unemployed, and so the, the Department of Labour might have records about you. And then, of course, the superannuation side of it means that your information is going into electronic records. The Ministry of Social Development has a huge database of information about citizens, and it shares some of that information under authorised process with many other government departments. This sharing of information between different government departments is called data matching. A new match has just been put in place which is called the, the fines at the borders match and that um, has, does have the capacity for people to be stopped at the border because they owe a very high level of um, fines. And uh, we, last year, were not entirely satisfied with the way that match was being run, but we are working with the, the department concerned to try and make sure that the wrong people don't get stopped from leaving the country. Information about New Zealanders who have a passport is also shared overseas. Your name, please. This is a final morning call for passengers travelling through to Sydney on flight 48. Before getting on a plane to go overseas, passport control staff scrutinise a person's details and in particular see if any alerts come up on their computer. The passport database is shared with Australia. Authorities in the United States also require that the passport information of any US citizen travelling from New Zealand is passed on to them. Robin Whitaker from EMC says it's important how information that's gathered about individuals is kept and stored. While 70% of information of your digital universe, should I say, is created by people, over 85% of it actually ends up on storage and systems that don't belong to the people, that belongs to government agencies, corporations, commercial entities. So over three quarters of it ends up on, on systems that are not under your control. So there's a huge responsibility on those organisations to protect it, to not only store it, but protect it, to control access to it, to be sensitive to what the information is, to not needlessly try and derive revenue from it, because there's a big question about who owns that information. In New Zealand, the Privacy Act covers how information can be used. Marie Schroff. The Privacy Act provides some pretty clear principles about only collecting information that you need, only using it for the purpose that you collected it for, making sure that it's kept safe and not disclosing it uh, inappropriately. How does that, how does New Zealand's Privacy Act apply to companies that are now overseas and international companies? New Zealand has a fairly typical privacy law for the Western world, but it only applies in New Zealand. So if New Zealanders' information goes overseas, uh, we, don't, we don't have jurisdiction. But if it goes to a country such as Australia or the UK or most countries in Europe where they have similar privacy laws to ours, then there's the capacity for a New Zealander to complain to privacy commissioners overseas. There's a huge amount of information going overseas. You've only got to look at the fact that, for example, most of the major banks in New Zealand are, are Australian-owned. We don't know exactly what is happening to that information, but there's certainly the capacity for it to go overseas. CCTV, cell phone call data, financial information, government data matching, passenger profiling, 
much of this information is gathered and used without people being aware of it. Surfing websites also leaves a trail of information. Google records all of that. Most people use Google or Yahoo or one of the main search engines, and they record all of that stuff and use it for their own purposes. Hank Wolf is an expert in computer security at Otago University. Where you go, when you go there, your ID as well. So they see whatever you do, whenever you do it, and it's all recorded. Much of this information is recorded by the use of cookies, tech jargon for small text files of information that certain websites attach to a person's hard drive while they're browsing websites. Dick Hart, who's the founder and CEO of Skip, a company specialising in identity management on the internet, explains. You know, as you visit different sites, your machine will get a cookie set on. Essentially, the cookie enables the site to know that you've been to the site, and the next time you go to the site, your machine gives that cookie so they know that that you were the you know that you did something at another point in time. And embedded in that cookie or associated with it could be the kind of information you looked at. Now, as a user, there can be some benefits on that. You know, you go to a site that's about cars, and you go to another site, and of all the ads they have to show, you know, one about a particular kind of car might be the one that they would show you because it seems like you have more interest in cars. So it's going to be more relevant ads, which has an improved experience for the user, and of course, improved results for the advertiser. The negative aspect is that it isn't transparent. People don't know that that's happening. They don't know that. You know, an activity they did on one site is known by another site, and so that's really where the concern is. So we have currently a, a positive result, but the fear is that same kind of technology could be used for very negative things, where you know judgments and prejudice could be made about you because it's not transparent to you that these people know what you're doing on different sites. You're sort of giving off an aura of information with whatever you do online, whether you know it or not. Eve Mailer is another specialist in identity management and works at Sun Microsystems. It's a lot of unconscious shedding of information, if you will. Like, for example, your browsing practices and what internet address your computer is coming from when it visits other sites on the web. Those are sorts of things that are kind of you can't help it, and they're quite technologically sophisticated. And bad guys can use that to track you in ways you might not want. Now. There's other kinds of information that you might be giving off that you do quite consciously that you don't realize there's any harm in. Filling out surveys online, giving away your demographic data for free stuff, but you know, little by little, there's buildup of data, and if they make a mistake in how they manage the data, there can be information revealed. One of the most common ways that people now reveal themselves online is by using social networking sites. Eve Mailer says sensitive personal information is popping up on these sites all the time. And it's not just teenagers who put it there. She gives this example of a friend's public revelation on the mini blogging site Twitter. He started posting a couple of they call them tweets, Twitter updates, where he started talking about things maybe not right at home. And now I know him. I know his wife. I thought, yeah,、oh, makes kind of a lot of sense. Gee, sounds like he's having a rough time. He then had a very planned, well thought out series in rapid succession of Twitter messages that told the world. He was breaking up with his wife, and then the next thing said, "I haven't told my kids or my parents yet." But what can a company do with the information after it's posted? By accessing or using our website or the mobile version thereof, 
together the site, or by posting a share button on your site, you, the user, signify that you have read, understand, and agree to be bound by these terms of use. How often do you read the terms and conditions of a site before ticking the "I agree" box and moving on? We reserve the right, at our sole discretion, to change, modify, add, or delete portions of these terms of use. Robin Whitaker from EMC. I click yes, I agree, just as fast as you. But I was on a, an internet forum the other day, and, and somebody raised about the end-user license agreement of an organisation. That will almost certainly have software on everybody's PC, and they had opened up and established a place for you to store your photographs. But when you read their end-user license agreement on storing your information on their site, they then reserved the right to, while they said we don't own your information, you know that is yours, we reserve the right to publish it, disseminate it, include it in any of our material, to derive income from it without having to share any of it with you. So you are effectively handing over everything other than ownership of that information, of those photos, to that organisation, right? And there was a huge, big stink in the forums about that, and that caused that organisation to, to redo that end-user licence agreement to make it much less draconian. Membership of the service is void where prohibited. Professor Hank Wolf does read the terms of use. He also protects his identity by not buying things over the internet, by not disclosing his name and address to stores, and doesn't have a cell phone. My son owns a domain, and said, "Well, Dad, you might as well have an email address on my domain." And I said, "Sure." So he set it up, and I didn't realize, but Google was running the domain for him. And before I、uh, could actually use it, I had to. Register with Google, and like most people, don't bother reading these things. I do, and I read their、uh, privacy policy and all the other policies that they provide you with at the beginning. And、um, essentially, I give over all of my rights to them, to all of my information. It is your responsibility to regularly check the site to determine if there have been changes to these terms of use and to review such changes. The terms of use of Facebook are eight pages long. This clause gives the company extensive rights over any material that's posted. By posting user content to any part of the site, you automatically grant the company an irrevocable, perpetual, non-exclusive, transferable, fully paid worldwide license to use, copy. Publicly perform, publicly display, reformat, translate, and distribute for any purpose. It's something not widely known, even among tech-savvy teenagers or tech natives, as they're known, like 16-year-old Maria English from Marsden School in Wellington. I would hope like that nothing bad's going to happen because Facebook has your information, but I guess it's more、um, that you kind of put it, you plug everything in there without really knowing where it's going to end up or what's going to happen to it.、Um, and even if it's like fine, just you know, sitting in their little back room or whatever、um, at the Facebook headquarters, I think people. Need to take more responsibility for the information. Until recently, Facebook also continued to store a person's information or profile, even if the user shut down their account. It meant an account could be deactivated, but never completely closed. This infuriated people like Alan Burleson, who wanted to remove his account. You go through a process where there's a, a form that you fill in, and when you get to the bottom of the form, it tells you that although your account's going to be deactivated, they don't actually remove your information. So that set a few alarm bells ringing. 
It was only in February this year that Facebook amended its policy, telling people if they wanted to delete their account, they could direct the company by email to have it done. A backlash from account holders has also seen Facebook shut down its Beacon program, which directly linked big businesses to Facebook users. Another concern was revealed recently, though, when the BBC's Click program exposed a security flaw that could allow personal details of Facebook users to be stolen. The fictitious Bob Smith keeps most of his details private from non-friends, but here's what our minor application managed to retrieve. Facebook says it constantly monitors the site and removes things that violate its terms of use, which would include the BBC's minor application. Is it this type of problem, though, that has prompted a bit of a Facebook backlash? Facebook is a crime when people have too much time. Sending me requests, IQ and brain tests. This on YouTube, where a number of Facebook parodies have been posted. No matter, in New Zealand, Facebook remains popular, vying for top social networking site with Bebo. I talked to 16-year-olds Jacob Diggle and Maria English and Thomas Mitchell, who's 15, about their computer use. I think, as people do, often are a little bit silly in what they do on sites like Facebook and Bebo, and I do see friends that will have you know 400, 500 friends on Bebo and Facebook, on Bebo mainly. And I think that is quite dangerous because you're putting information like photos, you know, where you live, your cell phone number, you know, information which for friends would be quite useful because you know you might, you might lose your phone and need to get you know their cell phone numbers back again. But to have that information available to four or five hundred people, it's definitely a risk, and it's something which I try to avoid as much as possible.、Um, yeah, it's not just available to people you may know. Um, quite closely. It's also seeing now news agencies. If someone who didn't choose to be in the news but suddenly come up, they get their Facebook pictures put up, and even the BBC website is now doing that, which is obviously quite a reputable source.、Um, I think it's definitely really scary,、um, especially because often when you put something up onto a page,、um, it's quite a kind of spontaneous thing. Like you're not really thinking about it that far. Like ten just don't really think that far in advance anyway, but. You、just kind of you know bang it on there, and then once you've kind of done that, that's quite a final thing. Like it's there, and you 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 can take it off. But、um, by that stage, you know people could have copied and pasted it. They could have put it on their own pages or whatever.、Um, and then to know that like years down the track,、um, that that stuff that can then come up again、um, is quite a scary thing. And I think probably、um, people just need to think, like, especially now that employers are like, looking at this when they're employing people. Quite important,、um, you know, aspects of your life can be affected by it. So we've just got to like think a bit more about about what we're doing because at the time it just seems like it doesn't seem to have any kind of consequence at all. I think people are becoming far more aware.、Um, there's far less naivety,、um, and yes, there's always going to be Bob, who's 45, who pretends to be Cindy, who's 12. But you can also have Cindy, who's 12, you know, pretending to be someone older. It, it works both ways.、Um, I don't think there's a. I don't think it's as bad as is often made out. The online auction site TradeMe is among the many employers which now search for digital information about prospective employees. And its chief executive John McDonald says people should expect that to happen routinely. It's very common to Google someone when you're looking to hire them, and and not even that.、Um, I Google you, I'll, I'll t-、uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and and so I think that you know that is、um, something that you should expect.
and it is pretty much course of everyday business in a lot of places. Professor Hank Wolfe from Otago University says the issue is not so much that digital information is gathered and used, but that people know whether, when and how it's happening. It's fine if you're informed and you, and you make a decision based on solid information and you choose to go that way, that's fine. But people, for the most part, I believe, go in uninformed and don't realize what they're giving up and what the risks might be as a result of giving up that privacy or or the protection you might otherwise expect. That program was written and presented by Sue Ingram.